Let me pray for us. Lord, this morning as we, we come before you and we open your word um, and we read your words to us, we read the scriptures, Lord, we ask that you would give us open hearts and open minds. That these words wouldn't fall on deaf ears or hardened hearts, but that your spirit would be at work, that we would listen to what you're trying to say to us, to teach us this morning. And so I ask that you would give us understanding in, in what this means and, and in how it affects how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a Bible if you have one. If you have it on your phone, open up your phone and go to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. I have a one thing to say before we start this morning, which is, growing up, I had a bit of a lisp, and so reading uh, the word Thessalonians again and again, if you hear me slip up a few times, that's okay, that's a, it's expected. I'd be surprised if I didn't slip up on that word. So if you hear Thessalonians a few times, that's fine, just, just go with it. I have, uh, I have a few nephews and one niece. And so uh, I have Corey. Corey is almost 10 years old, and he'll be 10 in November. He's my brother's little boy. And then my sister has three little ones. So there's Oakley, who's the oldest, 10, same age as Corey. And then there's Teddy. And if you're wondering, Teddy is his actual name. It's not like Theodore or Edward. His his legal name is Teddy. And so uh, actually when he was younger then, my uh, brother-in-law and sister got a little teddy, teddy bear outfit, a uh, onesie for him. So it was quite adorable. And then the youngest is Jimmy. Um, and so I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about Corey. There's one thing that you really need to know about Corey, which is that he loves Lego. Now, who loved Lego growing up, or even now? Yeah? Okay, great. My father-in-law loves Lego as well. And so that's the one thing you need to know about Corey. If you want to know the type of person, the type of boy that he is, he loves Lego. And so I can't think of the number of times that he has run up to me, grabbed my hand, and said, Uncle Simon, Uncle Simon, come on, I want to show you my Lego. And so we'll go down, we'll look at his Lego, and he'll show me something, and I'm, I'm really interested. And, uh, and often, you know, I'll pick something up, and, uh, and that's kind of across the line. You know, he's, he's kind of like, you know, I want you to look with your eyes, not with your hands, Uncle Simon. What, what are you doing? Put it down. You kind of forcefully, firmly take it out of my hand. No, no. Just I want to show you. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want you to touch it. And so he talks about Lego a lot. If you want to be his best friend, then you, you buy him some Lego, and you'll be his best friend until the next person comes along and buys some Lego. And so he, he is thankful for Lego. He talks about Lego. This is one of those things that he talks about and he's thankful for a lot. And you can tell a lot about someone by what they are thankful for, uh, but by what they talk about continually. You can tell what their priorities are based on what they're thankful for, what they talk about. More than what someone thinks that they believe or what they think their priorities are, what they talk about, what they think about, that really shows, reveals what their priorities are. Ah, and so more than what I think that I believe, more than what I think that my priorities are, what I talk about. If, if you want to know what I think my priorities are, listen to what I talk about. Listen to what I am thankful for. We're not just minds. We're not just thinking beings, but we're entire persons. 
And so when we truly believe what we say or what we believe, it overflows in our lives. It expresses itself in what we do, in how we act, what we give thanks for. And so really the starting point for this morning is this fact. It's the, the things that we talk about, that we give thanks for, and that we pray about reveal our priorities. What we talk about, what we give thanks for, what we pray about, that reveals what our priorities really are. That's the foundation for this morning. That's what everything else is going to build on this morning. And our true priorities affect the trajectory of our lives, whether we live in a way that leads to growth and health or to, to pain, or whether we live in a way that, that honors God or that dishonors Him. So it's necessary for us to regularly evaluate our priorities. When we come to the Apostle Paul, the early church leader, and the letters that he wrote to different churches and individuals, we see that he often starts his letters by saying why he is thankful for this particular church, why he's, he's thankful for this particular congregation. And it reveals what his priorities are. And so in Romans, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is thankful to God because the Roman church's faith is proclaimed in all the world. Or you think of Philippians, this greatly encouraging letter that Paul writes, and he begins with this thankfulness. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Even in 1 Corinthians, that letter that you read and you kind of think, oh, I guess our church isn't that bad. You you read this and you think, how messed up is the Corinthian church? Paul begins that letter by thanking God for the Corinthian believers. He's so thankful so often that when we actually come to Galatians, the, the one letter that really doesn't start with thankfulness, then it sticks out like a sore thumb. And so when we come to 2 Thessalonians, our reading today, we see another of Paul's letters start with thankfulness to God. And we get a glimpse into what the priorities of a follower of Jesus should be. And a particularly helpful book as I've been preparing for this and that drew my attention to this in the first place is by a guy called D.A. Carson. It's called A Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. And so I I commend this to you if you want to read this, if you want to go deeper into this idea of of priorities in prayer. And that's our, our subtitle for this morning, Growth and Endurance, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. So why don't you stand with me? And let's read 2 Thessalonians. It's a short reading today, but we'll dig into it. Verses 3 to 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Go ahead and take a seat again. Who likes gardening? Who's a fan of gardening? That's one of their hobbies. I know there's a number of you. Nice. Uh, or, or, you know, growing plants, growing uh, fruit and veg. My, uh, I grew up in a, a quite rural part of England. And so the, the county is called Suffolk. And it's really an agricultural, it's a farming county. And so my granddad was a, a farmer his whole life. Uh, my dad grew up helping my granddad on the farm. And he's always had a, um, yeah, a real heart for, for growing food and, and veg. And uh, so I'm kind of you know, two generations down. My, my, my granddad was a farmer. My dad's really interested in it. But I didn't grow up on the farm like my dad did. I've only really had one experience, one attempt. Yeah, that's probably a better word. Uh, at growing something since, since moving away from, from my parents' home a number of years ago. And that's um, where it came from is when my sister got married. Then uh, it was a few years before they had kids. And really good cook. And so, particularly Italian food, you know, which uses a number of herbs and things like that. And so, her and her husband, early on in their marriage, they started growing their own herbs. So, I'd go around for supper and, and you know, fresh basil, like on pizza, a homemade pizza. This is the life. And so, shortly after I got married, um, then I had the same idea. You know, I was walking through Superstore one day and saw some, some pots I could get, some potting soil, some, some herb seeds. You know, my sister did it. Like, yeah, I should do this as well. Fresh herbs to, to use in cooking. And um, I will be honest, there was a point at which I, I bought everything, kind of started putting them together and thought, you know, I could have bought probably about a decade's worth of, of herbs if uh, with, <laughs> with the materials that I've got. So I don't think this is really a, a cost-effective thing, but you know, it, it's fresh, fresh, that's the thing. And so, um, and so Jenna and I, I guess this was about April, May last year, um, planted these herbs and, and you know, how, how difficult can it be? Started watering, you just gotta keep, make sure they don't die really, just keep watering them and then, and then they grow and that's fine. And so this, they grew for a while. Uh, they, they kept growing for a while. And then um, I, I got a little bit behind um, and they, they withered a little bit. Uh, it kind of went from green to, to then, you know, a bit, bit brown and then, and then more brown and then um, finally just died completely. Um, and at this point, you know, Jenna was about six months pregnant, and so I'm like, oh no, like, I've killed these herbs, I can't even make these, like, keep these herbs alive, and now we're going to have a baby in a few months. Um, fortunately, although I failed with the herbs, Everett is, is doing well, he's just had his first birthday, and so, um, so we didn't completely fail in, in that area. So is the moral of the story that babies are easier than herbs to grow? No. Uh, <laughs> One of the things that we see repeated throughout Scripture is this idea of, of growth. And often it's, it's agricultural references and analogies. Just like everywhere in the world, until fairly recently, Israel was, uh, it had farming and agriculture that was central to its daily life. 
That's why many laws in the Old Testament revolved around farming and crops. That's why Jesus used so many agricultural analogies and and metaphors in his teachings and his parables. As we looked at the parables over the past few months, then a number of these these agricultural farming metaphors came up within those parables. You know, think of the well-known parable of the different types of soil and how the seed is, is thrown by the sower and some of it falls on part, the, the path and it's just eaten up by birds. And then some of it falls on, on some soil but it's surrounded by things that, that choke it up once it grows or the sun scorches it and it, and it withers. But finally, there's also some seed that, that goes on good soil and it grows up and it multiplies. So we see these agricultural, these these plant metaphors for, for growing in Scripture. Uh, sometimes human life analogies are, are used for, for growth. And so we see Peter talking about a baby needing milk to grow in order to, to illustrate what it's like for us to grow in our salvation. And so there are these different types of analogies used throughout Scripture, these these plant metaphors and then these these human life metaphors. And in this passage, Paul picks up on this this growth language. This is the same word that's used to talk about plants growing. Just as a healthy plant grows up and multiplies, just as a healthy baby grows up bigger and stronger. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul is thankful for the two things in this verse, the Thessalonians' faith and their love. But it's not just their faith that he's thankful for, but it's their growing faith. And it's not just their their growing faith even, but it's their abundantly growing faith. Their faith is growing abundantly. A few other translations use the word flourishing, that their faith is, is flourishing. Those of you that said you liked gardening, think of that, that one plant that's doing really well right now. You know, you know, the others are, they're growing, they're okay, but there's this one plant that you're really proud of. That's the one that, that, that's flourishing. This is what the Thessalonians are like for Paul. Their ongoing growth is, is a great joy for him. That's why he's so thankful to God. And it's, it's their faith that's growing. It's not their paychecks that have grown. It's, it's not their possessions. It's not their academic achievements. It's not their business. It's not their security and safety. It's their faith. It's their trust in God. It's their confidence in God that has grown, that is growing. Continually, continuous, growing. Not has grown, but it's this ongoing process. Their lives are marked by an increasing reliance on God and belief that he is who he has said he is. 
that he has done what he has said he has done, that he is doing what he has said he is doing, and that he will do what he has said he will do. An increasing reliance on God and belief that he is who he says he is, that he has and he is and he will do what he said he will. And this is centrally with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in mind. They believe that God's purpose for reconciling humanity to himself was fulfilled in Jesus. That he was perfect, that he sacrificed himself, that he took on our sins, that he took our punishment so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled to God, brought back to God, justified, made right in his sight. And then they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, showing his power over sin and death. The way that the Thessalonians lived was this, in, with this in mind, continually. It would affect everything that they did each day. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is their foundation for their trust in God. And so their actions aren't dictated by their fears. It's not dictated by what they're afraid other people will think of them or of circumstances that could come up. But instead, they live in a way that's dictated by their, their trust their reliance, their faith in God that's increasing, that's growing day by day. And it's this trust that's revealed in God's word through the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's this whole chapter that that showcases these great examples of faith from the Old Testament. So we see a, a number of people Reference. We see some of the judges, some of the prophets, some of the, the kings of Israel mentioned. But one of these examples is Abraham, the, the great patriarch. And in Genesis 12, this is what it says about Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house Leave everything behind. Leave everything that you know behind and go to the land that I will show you. He's not even saying what the land is. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to show you what the land is. So leave everything and then I'll, I'll show you where you're going. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all you the families of the earth shall be blessed so Abraham went as the Lord had told him Abraham's great faith great trust in God that that even when the Lord called him to leave everything he knew behind all his safety all his security that, that he did leave even when there was so little assurance And that doesn't mean that Abraham's life was perfect and that he didn't make mistakes. But in this case, there was a great act of faith, a great act of trust 
in God. When you trust someone, you trust what they say and you respond accordingly. And what God has said to us is revealed in his scriptures. It doesn't come out of thin air. It's not a personal revelation. No, supremely it is in his word that he has passed down to us. In Colossians chapter one, Paul writes, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. Notice that, that growth language, bearing fruit, growing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice what Paul is praying for here for the Colossians. Increasing knowledge that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That you may increase in the knowledge of of God. And so there's an element of of increasing knowledge, of, of learning more about God and what he says and what his will is, but it's not as an end in and of itself. What does Paul say? That you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, with the result that, with the the end in mind, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, starts with with finding God's will, with with learning the knowledge of of who God is and what his will is and what he is like. But it's just that, it's the start. It must then lead to a life that's marked by greater faith, greater relationship, a deeper relationship, greater trust in God and what he has said. Faith is not an abstract concept that lives in our mind. No, Paul is talking about a a deeply practical, radical trust displayed through belief and obedience to God. It means that in all of life's ups and downs, when you get that promotion and when you get laid off, when you experience loss and family members and friends pass away. And also when there's great joy and new life comes into your family. It means that in all of those situations we fix our eyes on God, that we seek him continually and that we are continually concerned with what he says and how he would have us act and respond. And it's not blind faith or blind trust. It's based securely on what God has done. Supremely so in his great act of love in sending his son to die for our sins and to take away our sins and in raising him from the dead. Our trust is based on what God has done. In real history, including what he's done in our own lives, It's a good exercise to continually remember 
the, the providence and the faithfulness of God in our own lives because we so easily forget. The second thing that Paul is thankful for is for the Thessalonians' love. He's thankful for their faith, their growing, their flourishing faith, but also for their increasing love. And not just their increasing love, but their increasing love for one another. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Increasing, like growing. The idea of expanding, getting bigger, in contrast to to shrinking or, or static, staying in the same place. And this reminds us of that time in the Gospels where someone comes to Jesus and he asks him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responds by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's this primary, there's this vertical relationship between us and and God. And then there's this this horizontal relationship that's described between one another and and the love that we're to have between one another. And do you see the parallel between 2 Thessalonians and and with Jesus' teaching on the greatest commandments? Paul thanks God for their growing faith, their growing reliance, their trust in him. And implicit behind here is that they're living a life that, that honors God and that they're living a life in which they, they are loving God, showing love to God. And so there is this vertical relationship. There's this love for God that Paul is thankful for. And then there's also the love between one another that Paul is thankful for. Paul's focus on, on these relationships between the, the Thessalonians and God and among the Thessalonians themselves reflect this vertical and this horizontal focus of Jesus, the two great commandments upon which everything else hangs. And in Acts chapter two, we get this famous passage that we come back to again and again, and it's this picture of the early church and that shows us, shows what obedience looks like with these great commandments. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We see this community. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's this unity. There's this community and this unity within that community. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There's this generosity, this generous, unified community. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Thankful. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. It's this beautiful picture of the early church, 
of what it looked like for everyone to be loving one another, this, this mutual, this reciprocal, this, this love for one another displayed in their lives, in this unified community, this, this generous and, and thankful. You can imagine the patience that they would have had to have with one another. As different people gathered together from a variety of social classes, backgrounds and upbringings, personalities, rich and poor, extrovert and introvert, gardeners and non-gardeners. And this is the same that we face today. Now, what place is there like the church? Where there are so many varieties, so many differences in personalities, uh, and we all meet together and, and we have a faith in Christ in common. You know, the local church, Hillside, is comprised of people whom we wouldn't meet in any other place because their likes, dislikes, interests, hobbies, personalities are so different from our own. You know, I can say that over the years I've met a number of people in the church that I would never have been friends with elsewhere but because they're so different from myself, because there are character traits which I find frustrating or, or difficult. I'm not, I'm not thinking about anyone in particular. But what we have in common is that shared faith. Belief in the gospel. And that is greater than all these other differences. The spirit of God unifies us. And yet there's also the the continual task we have of living out that unity. And living in obedience to the spirit. This is one of the reasons that I, I think small groups are so important and that I've put so much, spent so much time thinking about them recently. The fact is you're never gonna have a deep relationship with everyone here at, at Hillside. There's a British anthropologist called Robin Dunbar and he has theorized that the maximum number of stable relationships that any person can have is 150. So in his own words, informally, that's the number of people you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them somewhere. That's the maximum. <laughs> and hey, guess what? Hillside's already bigger than that. And so <laughs> that's kind of out the window. And that doesn't even include your family relationships, your work relationships, your friends elsewhere. The benefit of small groups is that you get to know and be known truly by a small number of people. You have a chance to build trust. You're able to encourage and support one another, exhort and challenge one another, study scripture together, pray with one another, give thanks to God together, be on mission fulfilling God's purposes together, side by side. Learn from one another. Mourn with one another. Simply, you're, you're able to grow in your faith together, side by side. 
But by being in a, a smaller community, you also have the opportunity to more intentionally increase your love for one another. So when we think about Paul's prayer, thanking the Thessalonians that their love for one another is increasing, do we mean that we need to build a deep relationship with every single person here? Because that's quite overwhelming and unrealistic. And I'm not sure that that's what Paul has in mind. Or could we commit to supporting, investing in, walking alongside and loving intentionally just a few people, even if that takes us outside of our comfort zone, even if it's people that, if it wasn't for the church, we would never have met them, we would never have built a relationship with them. I think that's the vision that Paul has in mind here. So Paul is thankful for the Thessalonians' flourishing faith and increasing love for one another. But there's also a third thing that he is thankful for. Verse four, therefore we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So he mentions their faith again but also their steadfastness, their endurance, their perseverance. The idea he's getting at is their ability to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Not giving up, not giving in. And he mentions the persecutions, the afflictions that they're facing. In Acts chapter 17, we get this window into to what this persecution may have looked like. When Paul visits Thessalonica for the first time, where he, he plants the church there, people come to faith, that's the birth of the church in Thessalonica. And then it says this, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, those men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They set the city in uproar. They attacked the house of Jason. They dragged them before the city authorities. This is the kind of opposition that the church was facing. But they continued steadfastly. This is how the church in Thessalonica began in this kind of environment. Some of you may have experienced rejection and insults and hardships because of your faith. Particularly those who come to faith and are rejected by their family or their communities, which have different traditions we can't ever forget the sacrifice that it is for many people to come to faith. And the church must always be a new home and a new family for those who have lost for Christ's sake. And if you have personally experienced that rejection and suffering, Paul's words in 2 in Thessalonians should bring you comfort. 
He actually continues in this chapter to talk about because of the Thessalonians facing this and continuing steadfastly that they are being counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And then he talks about God granting them relief and comfort. And then later on, throughout this book, he, he talks about Christ's return, which makes us think about that day when there will be no longer suffering or pain or tears. And so for those of you that experienced that rejection, there are great words of, of hope that Christ is with you, that Christ knows what you have suffered and will reward you. However, this talk of persecution may seem distant to some of us. Not everyone suffers for the gospel in, in the same way and to the same degree. Although this verse does serve as a reminder of, of that, that awkward but consistent teaching throughout the New Testament that there's an expectation that just as Jesus suffered, so will his followers suffer. That it's expected that some form of, of rejection of suffering is inevitable for those who faithfully follow Jesus and proclaim the gospel. In every culture, there is always parts of God's message that will be offensive. And there are definitely parts of God's message of, of scripture that are offensive to many people in Canada now, and that are becoming increasingly offensive. So it's expected, it's inevitable to face some rejection. In addition to that, in addition to this idea of, of standing up, persevering in the midst of of suffering, ex external trials. We're also reminded, although it's not the focus of Paul here, we're reminded of the necessity of endurance in all things. Uh, I think of the parable that I mentioned earlier of, of the different types of soil and how as we read that parable, there are different things that can choke out faith. Sometimes it's persecution, but sometimes it's the worries and the cares of this life as well. The deceitfulness of money or other things. How easily can the worries of this life choke and kill our faith? How easily can we be distracted by lesser things? How easily we give up when pain and suffering come our way? In Hebrews, the author talks in chapter 12 and he says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The Christian life is like a, a race, it's like a marathon that we're to persevere in, to run with endurance, one foot in front of another, even when you, you hit that wall. Progressing and persevering. 
And so to, to draw these, these three points together. There are three things that Paul is thankful for that we see within this passage. He's thankful for the Thessalonians' growing faith, for their increasing love, and for their steadfast endurance. As I've been reflecting over this passage for the past week or two, I have been greatly challenged to go back to our original, the the, the start. What am I thankful for? What do I talk about again and again? What do I pray about again and again? And what does that show that my priorities are? And do these correspond with what I should be concerned with? And if I'm honest, I realize that my own prayers and thanksgiving have often reflected other priorities. This has been a reorientation for me. I think I've been more likely to pray for my family's physical safety and security than for their faith to grow and their love for others to increase. And I'm more likely to celebrate, to be thankful for achievements academic career milestones in life than their slow, increasing trust in God. Or more likely to pray for the absence of affliction and suffering for my brothers and sisters around the world than for their steadfast endurance through trials. What do your own prayers reveal to you? about your priorities, about the things that you hold most dear, the things that aren't as important as they should be, and the things that are more important than they should be. And how will you commit to to reprioritize your prayer over the next year, uh, using the priorities found in Scripture? As we finish, I just want to draw our eyes back to verse 3, which I think is a, an apt way to, to finish. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Notice what Paul says. It, it's implicit, and it's assumed, and we've, we've been thinking about this the entire way, but it's to God that he's thankful Paul isn't thankful to the Thessalonians for their growing faith and increasing love and endurance, although he does boast about them and he recognizes their faithfulness. It's to God that thankfulness is directed because he is the one that has enabled the Thessalonians to endure. He is the one that has saved them. He is the one that's given them growth in their faith. He's the one that's increased their love for one another through his spirit. One of the the trends I've seen for a while now is, you know, there are a number of self-help improvement books and practices that have come around, and one of those is the practice of gratitude, which is a very good thing. But it has to be set in its right place, and so you can get these journals that, that help you reflect on gratitude daily, 
You start the day by writing three things that you're thankful for. There are, there are apps to help you do this. But more important than the fact that we're, or as important as the fact that we're thankful is to whom are we thankful? You know, some would be thankful to the universe. Well, the universe can't help you in your trials and your suffering. Just, just thankful to, to nothing. I'm just thankful. It's just within me, thankfulness. That doesn't really help in daily life. No, our thankfulness is directed to God. Why? Because as James says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And that's why we're thankful to God, and that's why it's important that we are thankful to him. Let me pray. Lord, forgive us for our distorted priorities. Forgive me for my distorted priorities. That day by day, as time passes and we get into the routine of life, that it's easy to be one degree off and to look back over the past 10 years and just wonder where our priorities have been and how we could get it wrong and where we've ended up. So we ask for your forgiveness for our distorted priorities and we repent, Lord, and we thank you that you are loving, merciful, gracious, and you do forgive us. And Spirit, we, we think about these three priorities in Paul's prayer, these, th- these three things that he's thankful for, and we ask that you would give us that, that you would grow our faith that you would increase our love for one another, that you would help us to steadfastly endure when we face trials and persecutions and that we would endure through the the trials of life as well and and through time, through the daily um, difficulties that we come across, through the deceitfulness of life, Lord, that we would endure through that, that we would remember that this is a race and we would run with endurance. And Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We pray for their endurance. We thank you for the endurance, the steadfastness that we can hear about through different missionary organizations, that we hear about so many of our brothers and sisters who face persecution over this world. And we thank you that they have stood fast And lastly, Lord, we remember the cross. We remember your great sacrifice that is evidence that you deserve our trust and our faith. And so we look to you and we thank you for that supreme act of love. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. But before we finish, let me read this um, benediction to you. Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.